All right, how's this? Are we good? Is it cutting in and out? Uh, same, right? We're good? Okay, perfect. <laughs> hey, job as an opera singer. Okay, are we ready? Start? Excellent. So, we're going to be in your workbook on page, I don't know, on mine it's 34, 35. We just started last week, we dipped into it briefly about this idea of uh, Egypt, Canaan, Corinth, and Rome, holy sex in a pagan culture. We talked about how uh, Christians have always been called to be in but not of the world, and this is especially true when it comes to our sexual ethic. And we mentioned about the ancient Near East sexuality and Israel, the Leviticus Holiness Code. So in Leviticus 18 through 20, Israel's given, and hopefully you've read that before, but it's the sex chapter, basically, in Leviticus. It's the, you know, hey... Don't do this and this and this and this and this because there's a reason for that. Because the cultures that Israel was coming out of and the culture into which they were going were steeped in centuries of incredibly varied and um, idolatrous sexual practices. So there were things like Egyptian royal adultery. I mean, that should say incest, not adultery. Uh, it was definitely adultery as well, but re- Egyptian royal incest and divine bestiality. To consolidate power among certain pharaohs, they would practice intermarriage, incestuous marriages, brothers and sisters, and, and to, the idea was to keep the, the uh, family together. And, and in some parts, in some cultures like Persia and others, it was seen as a holy form of marriage, a holy form of sexuality. So the idea of, of marrying within your close family was widespread, throughout the ancient Near East. And that's one of the things God said, is you're not going to be that way. Uh, You as my people are not going to be that way. The other thing, divine bestiality, the reason there's warnings or prohibitions in the Bible against having sex with animals is because people were having sex with animals. I mean, they wouldn't say, don't do something if no one was doing it. It was the whole point. It was seen as, this is there, the stories of like, for instance, in the the Ugaritic mythology, which is like Baal and some of the others in the land of Canaan, um, the gods would, like for instance, Baal wanted to, to spread his, his offspring, spread his seed, he impregnated a cow. And the cow was seen as this symbol of fertility. And, and people did all kinds of things with all kinds of animals and livestock and everything else. So these practices were kind of ingrained into the culture, the fabric of the culture from which Israel had come and into which they were going. And so the holiness code, the, the, the Levitical law in chapters 18 through 20 that Old Testament Israel was under. That's not our covenant law. We aren't under that covenant law today. We don't follow all of the prohibitions. However, when we look at it, and if you want to know how it relates to the New Testament, whole session in Bible for the rest of us on that, so you can uh, check that series out. But the bottom line is we live under a different covenant, but it's the same God. And the Old Covenant displayed for God His priorities and his desires for his covenant people within their setting and the new covenant God is the same God and he reveals the same priorities to his people in our setting today so it's not a it's not as simple as you know opening up and saying well what does Leviticus say well that's what we do no it's not the case we don't do that if if you do do that then you're guilty of picking and choosing because you know Right in the same section or the same book is all kinds of prohibitions that Christians don't follow as well. So it's not that 
we need to look to Leviticus for our modern sexual ethic in a one-to-one manner. Rather, we need to look at Leviticus and say, what was Leviticus to Israel? And to Israel, Leviticus was, you're going to be a holy people in the midst of a fallen pagan culture, and you are going to be different than your surrounding culture. You are going to be my people. So that's the basis of it. The ancient Near East was steeped in fertility religion. It was all about um, pleasing the gods or getting the gods' favor or getting the gods to act on your behalf in ways that would increase your fertility, whether it was the fertility of your crops or the fertility of your womb. It was all about generating life. And what's the act that generates life? Sex. So therefore, sex was an intimate key part of pagan worship. It was intertwined. There wasn't this separation. So you had things in the cults of Baal or Asherah or, or Moloch, or sometimes he's called Milcom, these ancient Near East gods, where you would, you would do something to get them to engage in some type of lustily, um, uh, sexually explicit activity, because when it rained, that was seen as Baal sending his seed down into the womb of the earth, planting it in there, and then the crops that are growing, was the harvest was seen as the bringing forth of life. It was all tied up in, in religion and in farming and agriculture. So all of these things that we can't just look at it through a modern uh, lens where, where religion and philosophy and agriculture and culture and all of these things are separate airtight compartments. It was all one thing. And what God was trying to do was enter into that world and point them in a different direction. It was trying to point them back towards what it was intended to be rather than what it had become throughout all of the cultures of the world. Get back to that in a minute. But you had the, the high places. You read about this in the Old Testament where the prophets condemn worshiping at the high places. Well, high places were where you would go and there would be these shrines dedicated to the, the, the fertility gods. Why on the high places? Because that was higher. The higher up you were, the more likely you were to get the attention of the gods. And Israel would partake in this. Israel would worship in the sanctuary They would do the sacrifices of Yahweh, and then they would go and participate in the high place worship on the side. They were hedging their bets. We'll worship Yahweh because he brought us out of Egypt, but just to be safe, we're going to worship the gods of this land as well, which is exactly what God warned them not to do and said, if you do it, the land will vomit you out just like it vomited out the inhabitants who did these things before you got here. It's exactly what Israel's history is filled with. But at the high places... Or in the pagan temples, you'd have the Kedeshim, the holy ones. These were, these were temple prostitutes. They were called holy ones. They were prostitutes. That was their job. Their job was to facilitate worship of the fertility gods by having sex with the worshipers, male or female, or both. Adults or children, didn't matter. All of these deviant practices, all of these things that, that, that God is saying in the Holiness Code and elsewhere, you're not to do, is what they were doing. It was all wrapped up in the idolatry. And so God was pointing his people back to creation by, by, by calling them out of the culture in which they were surrounded in order for them to exhibit a different way, a different sexual ethic. So then in the New Testament, this is all Old Testament. Well, by the time we get to the New Testament, The general term for all of these pagan practices, all of these sexual 
behavior that characterized the Gentile world, there was a Greek term that became a catch-all term, and it was the term porneia. That's where we get the word pornography, pornographic. It's, it, it originally, as Ben Witherington, uh, scholar, uh, New Testament scholar, he says that porneia has a root sense of prostitution because pornai was the word for prostitute. So the root sense meant engaging in prostitution. But it could sometimes have a specific reference to incest, though often it was simply an umbrella term for any and all sorts of sexual sin, including fornication, which is a more old-fashioned way of saying sex with someone who's not your spouse. In other words, in Jewish and Christian circles, it referred to all sexual activity outside of marriage. This is key for forming our sexual ethic. In Jewish and Christian circles, by the time of Jesus, the word, the term, the Greek term porneia came to refer to all sexual activity that's not between a husband and his wife. That was porneia. In your Bible, it gets translated in various ways in English. Some translations have sexual immorality, some have perversion, some just have immorality, but it's all this word porneia. So whenever the New Testament talks about or prohibits believers from engaging in porneia, that's what it's referring to, is it's holding up the Old Testament sexual ethic in terms of the male-female marriage union being where sex takes place, and it's saying everything that falls short of this is not to be among you. You're called to something else. So when it comes to looking at the, the sexual ethic, Jesus not only upholds it, he intensifies the Torah sexual ethics when it comes to porneia. Some people think Jesus, you know, oh, grace, the law was so demanding and Jesus came and gave us an easier way. Not at all. That's entirely the opposite of what Jesus did. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus goes and, and, and points his hearers back to what they should be doing in order to truly have a relationship with God, not just a token relationship, not just a religious relationship, but to have a genuine spirit-filled relationship with God, every time he references Torah and the commands of the Torah, he raises the bar. So, for instance, Matthew 5.27, you'll, you know, he'll talk about, well, the, the Torah says don't commit adultery, but I'm telling you, don't even desire to commit adultery. Because if you do that, then you've already broken Torah in your heart. Like he, he raises the bar on every issue. When it comes to sexual ethics, Jesus always raised the bar. He never lowers it in the terms of sexual ethics. So it doesn't mean that Jesus says, so just read Leviticus and do what it says. What it means is for Jesus, the ethic of sexuality contained in the creation narrative and then put forward in the Levitical holiness code was the foundational ethic from which he worked. People say a lot of times, and we'll talk about this in a while, that Jesus never addressed the issue of homosexuality. That's complete nonsense. He absolutely 100% addressed the issue because homosexuality was a type of porneia, and Jesus talked about porneia. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an urban legend. It's a pop notion from people that, that don't necessarily study Scripture closely, but, but Jesus had a sexual ethic, and it was very much as we saw a couple of weeks ago when he was looking at the divorce issue, it was very much leaned towards a more stringent view of what sexuality should be. Jesus didn't point people back to the Torah, the commandments. He pointed people back to creation, to God's intention. So in other passages, in Matthew 
15, 19. I've given you these on your sheet, on your workbook, so you can see. You know, when Jesus says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, that word is porneia. And that's referring to things that aren't sex between a husband and a wife. Theft, false testimony, slander, these are what make a man unclean. Eating with unwashed hands doesn't make him unclean. Jesus was addressing the ethic of what really matters, and he put at the core. Did you see what he put it beside? You see the things he's listing? Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. Jesus puts those all in the category together. So it's, it's, we, can't, we can't do two, there's two mistakes we can make. We can say, well, Jesus never mentioned, you know, particular sexual sins. Yeah, he did. He just mentioned them in an umbrella term. We also can't say Jesus said that sexual sins were worse than the others because he didn't. And Jesus was just as condemning of slander and false testimony as he was sexual immorality and murder. That should sink in for Christians when we start to feel kind of self-righteous about issues of sexuality, is, is he was very much, in other words, it doesn't mean we should, we should start taking sexual ethics lightly because we take, you know, slander lightly. No, it means we should have the same opposition to saying, to, to spreading falsehood with our mouths as we do to spreading sexual relationships and STDs and pregnancy and all that kind of stuff with our bodies. we got to raise the bar, not lower it. This is where Christians on both sides of the spectrum start to get a little uncomfortable. But Jesus cut to the root. Again, the parallel in Mark 7, down in verse 21, for within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a person unclean. Jesus hit everyone in that list. So yes, sexual immorality is a real sin, and it is something that we are are called to, to, to oppose in ourselves first, and then later within the larger body of Christ. But while we're doing that, we have to be equally vigilant against the more acceptable sins the ones that we seem to tolerate. And just spend 30 minutes on social media and you'll see that all of these are routinely put forth by Christians. So we have to do better. We have to hold the bar high. In Revelation, most people don't realize Revelation is, the, is a book by Jesus. I mean, Jesus gave the Revelation to John. So John's writing down his vision, but it's the vision that Jesus, the risen Jesus, gave him. It's the only book in the New Testament that originates from the risen Jesus, the exalted Lord of creation, gives us that perspective. That's what Revelation is. And in Revelation, multiple times, but in particular at the end, when when the book is giving the warning or it's it's saying, hey, this is is the whole reason I'm writing, I've given you this vision. This is the whole reason that that we've gone through these entire 20, 21, 22 chapters of Revelation is so that you will get this. And then look what he says, Revelation 21.6, he said to me, it's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who's thirsty, I'll give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, 
those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. For the risen Jesus, sexual ethics was literally a life and death thing. For the risen Jesus, so was lying. So was being vile. And these are life and death issues, which is why Revelation was written to begin with. It goes on in chapter 22. And these are like the happy chapters, right? This is the celebration at the end of Revelation. After all the beasts and dragons and blood and fire and all of that, this is supposed to be the end. And look what he says in 22. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the, quote, dogs, and that's a reference to uh, pagan Gentiles within the context of Revelation. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. He couldn't be more explicit. Jesus could not be more explicit. And this is risen Jesus. This is omnipotent, omnipresent Jesus, exalted Jesus. And he's speaking about these ethical issues. So saying that Jesus never had much to say about sexual morality just means that you haven't really read the New Testament because he had enough to say about it. And he put it in a category along with all of the other most heinous sins and all of a lot of other sins that we don't think are so heinous. But through the eyes of heaven, they were. So it's something that should challenge all of us when we're forming our sexual ethic, when we're having to think about this. Um, but Jesus' approach is what's so beautiful. His approach, and this is on page 36, at least in my workbook here, it's maybe a little different, but Jesus' approach with sexual sinners, the, the same Jesus who just listed sexual immorality, porneia, sex between people that aren't husband and wife, the same Jesus who just said that, is the same Jesus who exhibited this strict tenderness towards people who were engaged or enmeshed in sexual sin. That's the, the, um, that's the, the mystery of how Jesus dealt with people. That's the paradox of the gospel, is that Jesus could hold the fact that sin is such a death-dealing, human-destroying, disgusting thing that's ruining creation enough for him to come down and die for. That's what Jesus could believe. And like usually people on the right are cheering like, yeah, you get him. That's exactly right. But at the same time, he would cross all cultural boundaries, all religious propriety in order to go and spend intimate one-on-one -on -one time with people who were considered beyond reach and utterly corrupted because of their sexuality. Now the people on the left are like, yeah, that's the Jesus we love. Well, those are the same Jesus. Both right and left get it wrong. Is that Jesus demonstrated this. It's not just tenderness. And it's not just strictness. It was a strict tenderness that he exhibited. He did it to the woman at the well who was cohabitating, living in fornication, had been a serial, adult, or a serial divorcee, and was living with someone who wasn't her husband. Jesus goes and speaks to her, breaks custom, goes right to her in the middle of the day, alone, talks to her. He didn't do that in that culture at all. 
And, and then he not only talks to her, but we find out that she has a dubious sexual past. He could have been contaminated by her sinfulness in the eyes of his culture. But instead, his holiness infected her because she then becomes the evangelist for that entire village. So we see it there in the woman caught in adultery. This is a tradition found in John chapter 8. Now I say tradition because this is not in the earliest biblical manuscripts. This story was not originally part of John's gospel. That in and of itself blows some minds. Uh, Again, see my Bible for the rest of us course because we talk specifically about it. But however, regardless of whether or not it was in John's gospel originally, which it wasn't, it was an early and widespread tradition among Christians, and that's why we see it in some manuscripts of Luke, or you see it in different places in John, in different manuscripts. So it's, 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 a, it's a good enough tradition to at least say, well, this goes back to probably a real encounter that's been added into the Gospels, because John says that you know, all the books in the world couldn't record all the things that Jesus did. So this is an example of one of those that, that they wanted to kind of rescue and put back in. But even if you do take it as Scripture, Jesus is approaching that. It's the famous one. This is the one that every atheist can quote. He who without, without sin cast the first stone. And it's usually put forth in a sense of, don't judge me. Who are you to judge me? Well, it's really crucial to read the whole story. Because after Jesus refuses to condemn the woman in a trumped-up kangaroo trial that was completely done against how it should be done according to the law, so in other words, it was illegitimate to begin with. That's one reason. After dismissing all of that, and pointing out the mob mentality and the vengefulness in the hearts of the people who are all doing it to try to trap Jesus at the expense of this woman, then Jesus turns to her, and he says, go and stop sinning. Go and don't do it anymore. He holds the highest standard. He doesn't, he doesn't lower the bar. He gives grace, but he then commands holiness. And that's how Jesus does in in all of his followers. He saves us from out of grace. Nobody earns God's favor. Nobody earns their salvation. But then he tells us, now live out that salvation in your day-to-day life, including in your bedroom. So he holds it to the high standard. The woman who washed his feet, Luke chapter 7. Woman comes in and she's she's you know just crying with gratitude and she she washes his feet with her tears and she dries it with her hair while he's with a bunch of Pharisees and, and others that are reclining and having a respectable dinner. This woman who's a known sinner, and if it was a woman called a known sinner, that usually almost almost without a doubt implies that it was sexual sin. That she was a woman of ill repute, whether she was an adulterer, whether she was a prostitute, whether she was whatever, just a reputation. And she comes in and Jesus lets her. And then he, he uses her as an example of someone who, who grace has in, invaded her life. And she's, she's broken in repentance and humble. And, and he uses her as a foil against the religious leaders and says, you, she's so far ahead of you, it's not even funny. So this strictness, but this tenderness is exhibited in Jesus. And then in Jesus' genealogy, this is the fun part. In Matthew, Matthew wrote his gospel Matthew structures the genealogy of Jesus that begins the book with three sections of 14 names. Now, it's an incomplete genealogy, and and genealogies in the Bible were never exhaustive. They aren't like today, like genealogy.com or ancestor tree or whatever you get into. They weren't exhaustive. All your genealogy had to be was who you were. It had to be a line that was accurate. 
Didn't have to have all the generations. And so Matthew structures his genealogy by omitting certain names of people that weren't as notable into three sections of 14 that comprise the three main eras of all of Israel's history as a people. It's part of Matthew's theme throughout the whole gospel in where he puts Jesus as the personal embodiment of the entire people of God. Again, that's a whole other lesson. But the point is, is in the genealogy, at the beginning, Matthew includes four women. Now, one, there was no reason to include women in a, an official genealogy because at that time it was seen as who going through your father, and women weren't usually included. So the fact that there were four of them in and of itself is it's a detail that should catch our eye. But the ones who he chose make it even more interesting because he chose, he puts Tamar in there. Tamar, who, who gave birth through a deceitful, incestuous relationship with Judah, gave birth to this line of the Messiah. I mean, you don't, you don't get more sexually dubious than Tamar in the Old Testament. This isn't David's uh, daughter, Tamar, Absalom's sister, any of that. This is way, way earlier back in Genesis back in the line of Judah when Judah was still a person who was alive, one of Jacob's sons. So he mentions Tamar. He mentions Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute. Rahab was a Canaanite prostitute. So she was a pagan prostitute. She was of the people who God was judging by sending Israel in. And yet, she's in the genealogy of Jesus, and she's put forward as an example of faith, despite her sexual dubious relationship. And then Uriah's wife is mentioned in verse 6. We know her as Bathsheba. Again, gave birth to a king in the line that would give rise to Jesus through an adulterous relationship with King David. So already in the beginning, in Matthew's genealogy, he's, he's showing all the skeletons in Jesus' closet. And these four names, and the last one, and this one isn't, it's, it's not an accurate actual sexual sin, but just the reputation that Jesus had at the time is Mary. Jesus' own mother is seen as and is questioned as, oh, virgin conception. Yeah, that happened. Sure, you got pregnant by the Holy Spirit. I mean, that was just as unbelievable then as it is now for most people. So even Mary's status was, was, was shady to the point where Joseph, who was righteous, was going to divorce her. So these four women in Jesus' genealogy, and what this is showing, it's part of a bigger picture that's showing, yes, sexual sin is a real thing. And yes, it's something that, that really does destroy people from the inside out, according to Jesus. However, it's not an unforgivable thing. It's not an irredeemable thing. And Jesus' own family tree is riddled with it. So this should all help us to see the attitude that Jesus had when it came to issues of sexual holiness, purity, and ethics. And that, more than anything, should be our foundation where we start when we're dealing with different uh, issues in our own culture, in our own day, in our own churches of sexual ethics. So then, okay, that was sort of the ancient, you know, Israel's history and their setting and everything. But what about Greco-Roman sexuality and the gospel? Well, it's the same paradigm. Just as Israel was called to be God's people holy in a pagan sexual deviant culture, so too in the New Testament, the gospel is sent out. And it, the only difference is now the boundary of who's considered Israel has gotten a lot bigger. That now... Israel, the seed of Abraham, has been opened up to Gentiles 
as well as Jews. So this has ramifications for the gospel going into the Greco-Roman world, which is what the first century was when the time Jesus came on the scene. Because hundreds of years of Greco-Roman philosophy and culture and practices had become so pervasive throughout the area that they were considered normal, particularly if you weren't Jewish. So we see in Jerusalem, uh, in, in Acts chapter 15, the, the, this, is, this comes up a lot in debates on, on modern churches and their acceptance of different sexual practices and how we should be open to including new uh, revelations of the Spirit. And if, and if Christians can be filled with the Spirit and yet still engage in unorthodox sexuality, then we should, like the disciples in Acts, when the Gentiles were coming in, we should not hinder what the Spirit's doing. We should allow them into the churches, allow them you know, full membership and ordination and all of this stuff. I mean, this is a very present and ongoing debate, particularly in mainline denominations like the United Methodist Church, but also among evangelicals to a lesser degree. And, and at the point in Acts when the gospel is starting to break outside of Israel, and it's starting to spread into this pagan Gentile world, where all of these forms of sexuality were still practiced and known and accepted, even the ones that weren't championed were accepted as just part of how it works, the gospel goes into that, and all of a sudden, Gentiles, non-Jews, start coming to believe in Jesus. So now the church has a problem. How can you be a Gentile? How can you not be a Jew and believe in Jesus? Today, it's the other way around. But back then, how can you not be Jewish and, and be part of the people of God? That's crazy. You're pagan Gentile. You're, all you know is pornea. All you know is idolatry. How can you be a people of God? And so, that's the question. Well, in Acts, what, the, what the, the Holy Spirit is given and the Holy Spirit's poured out even on Gentiles who confess and repent and come to faith so that the church then has to wrestle with this issue. What do we do with these Gentiles? Because they weren't raised with Jewish purity laws. They weren't raised with the holiness code. They weren't raised with all of these rules that we have in place and all of this identity as a culture of us as Israel. That's, they, they didn't come from that. They come from a pagan sexual culture. So what are we to do? How are they to live as Christians? What should we tell them to do? And the church prayed together and sought the Holy Spirit. And this is, this is the Jerusalem church. This is Jesus' brothers, like his literal brothers, like Mary's other children. Even if you're Catholic, it's still probably his other children. I know you don't believe that, but it's okay. Uh, regardless, these were the people who grew up in the household with Jesus whether they were Joseph's from a previous marriage, as some Catholics believe, which is fine, or whether they were Mary's children with Joseph naturally after Jesus was born. It doesn't matter. These were as close as you can get to Jesus and his original disciples, and they all got together and they wrestled with, what are we going to require Gentile pagan converts to hold to when it comes to being a Christian? And look what they tell them. Verse 15, chapter 15, verse 13, it's there on your page. When they finished, James, Jesus' brother James, spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. Simon, and that's Peter, has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. And it skips down verse 19. Here's what James says. It's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogue on every Sabbath. 
So in other words, they've got a chance to hear Moses all the time. What we need to lay on them was, these are the, this is what you need to focus on, breaking from your idolatrous culture. Breaking away from your idolatrous culture. And he lists these practices that were common in the Greco-Roman world, and in the marketplace, in the cities. And among those idolatrous restrictions, like meat offered to idols, strangled animal blood, all that kind of stuff, which all had idolatry connotations, among that, he includes sexual immorality. That word porneia is right there. Don't engage in porneia. So the spirit, and then so they go on to write uh, at the bottom, verse 23. They, well, they send uh, Judas, Bersabbas, and Silas, and, and they send them with this letter. Here's what the letter says. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. We've heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. In other words, saying you've got to become Jews first before you can be saved. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Paul, Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality, porneia. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. The men were sent off, went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. So whatever the Holy Spirit is leading us to do in terms of inclusivity, has to meet the bar of what the Holy Spirit put for the Gentiles as the baseline of ethical behavior. So any, anything that we do in, in an effort to be inclusive and inviting and, and wanting people to come into the kingdom has to still uphold the basic ethics of the kingdom. And one of the basic ethics of the kingdom is refraining from porneia in both testaments under both covenants, from the lips of Jesus himself, from the pen of the apostles themselves. This gets lost in the whole debate about churches and inclusion and, and, and acceptance and who are we to judge, and you know, as long as they love each other, it's okay, whether it's uh, heterosexual, whether it's homosexual, where it's polygamous, whatever it is, this gets lost in that discussion. But it's how the gospel made its way into the pagan culture. Peter wrote a letter to Greco-Roman Christians. Peter wrote a letter to Christians, believers, most of whom were Gentiles, but Jews as well. He just treated them all as part of Israel because in Peter's mind, Israel, the church, it was just one continuation of the same thing, the covenant people of God. And Peter writes this letter, and 1 Peter 4, 3, I've given you at the bottom. In his letter, he says, for you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not run with them into the same flood of debauchery, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Peter acknowledges that for Christians, their sexual ethic is going to make them seem bizarre. It's going to make them seem antiquated. It's going to make them seem out of step with the society that, into which they're going. It's going to, it, it's going to make them uh, be the outcasts rather than the ones in power. 
He expects that Christians will live in a culture where they are the minority when it comes to sexual ethics. And he's okay with that. So he gives them that. Um, there's a quote here on top of page 36 by Wesley Hill, and it says, viewed from the perspective of the culture, in other words, the early Christians' actions were crazy, but viewed from within the worldview of Israel's scriptures and the gospel, their actions represented the only rational option. Somebody once asked me when we were talking about it was a discussion I was having on college campus about sexuality and, and, and you know, engaging in different sexual practices and virginity and all of this stuff. And, and I just told him, no, I, no, I'm not having sex until I'm married. I mean, it's just part of the deal. It wasn't even a big secret. It was just, of course, I'm not sexually active. I don't have a ring on my finger. I'm not married. Why would I be? And it was so mind-boggling to the people. They were just like, looked at me, you know, and I was a college student at the time, and they were just looking at me like, what's wrong with you? What planet are you from? You know, we had this whole discussion, and, and, and I, but I told them, I was like, look, if, if Scripture's true, if Jesus got up out of the grave, then there's no other option. I mean, there's, there's no other option. If he's who he says he is, then what he says is the way. What he says is the, he has complete command of my life. And I don't get to pick and choose and say, well, Jesus, I like this rule, and that's good, but I also really like my girlfriend, so I'm going to compromise with my girlfriend, but I'm going to go to church with you and praise you on Sunday. It, it doesn't work that way. A life of discipleship is, is, is a life of discipleship. And for the early Christians, that's what it was. I mean, these are people who are willing to die rather than to deny Jesus. So for them, not participating in sexual morality was kind of not a big controversy. I mean, that was just agreed upon. That's what you, to, to, to enter into this faith, to become baptized means breaking with my old way of life. That's the norm for Christians. And somewhere throughout the centuries, and, and particularly in our culture and modern settings, it's become the exception. It's rare to find Christians that actually uphold that and can tell you why, other than, well, preacher said don't do it. Bible says don't do it. But who can actually think through what you've been doing these past four weeks, thinking through this issue and saying, here's why we don't do it. Here's why. Because of how awesome it is. Because of all of the goodness of creation. Because of all those reasons. The last thing that we have in Scripture, is Paul's letter to the Greco-Roman Christians. Paul's, uh, Paul and his encounter with Greco-Roman sexuality. Paul was writing, this is on page 37, he was writing into the same culture, and in his letters in multiple places, in Colossians chapter 3, 1 Thessalonians 4, Ephesians 4, I've given you here on your page, he writes them things like Colossians 3, 5, put to death. Therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Porneia, first thing on the list, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. So again, putting, the same, putting in the same category, sexual immorality and greed. How many of those, how many churches have you seen where both of those are rampant? Preachers are having sex with all kinds of parishioners and affairs and, and you know, scandals, and whether it's Catholic, whether it's Protestant, and at the same time, there's just rampant greed. They're amassing huge fortunes, and they're taking in all of these millions of dollars and buying these expensive things. I mean, this, and, and this is completely antithetical to a life of following Jesus, like 100% incompatible with a life of following Jesus. And Paul, does, Paul voices that in 1 Thessalonians 
he says, chapter 4, he starts chapter 4, finally, like the last thing he's going to tell him, finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you were living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that is, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that's holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And he goes down in verse 8, Therefore he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. I mean, the, the, the priority of place that Paul gives in a sexual, hypersexual uh, Greco-Roman culture to issues of sexual ethics is astounding. I mean, it shows that it's not just a minor thing. It really does because it cuts to the core of who we are. In Ephesians 19, he's, he's talking about, back in verse 17, he says, so I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. This was written 2,000 years before spring break. This was written before MTV was ever a thing. This was written way before internet porn. This, was, this is nothing new. And so we shouldn't wonder, why is our culture so sexually wild? We should wonder, why isn't it more? Because that was, that, that's that, tracing it back to the beginning. Look at, let's talk about Corinth and Corinthian culture for a minute. So this is, a, this is Corinth and, and the hill above it uh, that overlooks at the mountain. And on the top of the mountain overlooking Corinth was the temple of Aphrodite. All right, so back during the time Paul's writing this, up on top of that mountain, uh, the temple of Aphrodite. And the temple of Aphrodite was where Aphrodite was worshipped. Aphrodite was the goddess of love and, and sex and all of that stuff. Well, the way that Aphrodite was worshipped, the, the temple at one time, before the time of, of the New Testament, but, it, but a century or so before, at one time the temple of Aphrodite employed a thousand temple prostitutes. And they would go down from the mountain nightly into the city to entice people to worship. By worship, I mean have sex with them. That's a way to boost church attendance. <laughs> that's just, I mean, if you want to reach the society, <laughs> send prostitutes. No, but that's what they did. I mean, that's, that was part of it. This, this is the city that did this. So when people tell me, oh, America is just such a terrible culture. We've gone hell in a handbasket. We're just off. I'm like, the government has not sent a prostitute to my house to worship a pagan god recently. Maybe did to yours. I don't know. No matter how bad you think Obama is, or Bush, or whichever one is put in office next, they have not instituted state-sponsored, tax-funded prostitution to worship a foreign god. Right? We're not at the level that they were in so many ways. So we need to keep that in mind perspective-wise when we start to get into the culture war mentality and we start to long for the good old days of the 1940s and 1950s 
by the way, when black and white people weren't allowed to drink from the same water fountain, how those were the good old days tells a lot about who you were in those days. But regardless, is there weren't the good old days. There were the really, really, really bad days, and then some days that weren't as bad, and then some days that were even worse, and then history goes in these ebbs and flows. And culture is always going to be bad in many ways, but it will always be not as bad as it could be in many ways. Different ways, different shapes and different forms. But this was Corinth. This was Corinthian culture. Corinthian, Corinth was really prosperous. Like they were right on this, this Lambridge area where trade came through. They were super prosperous. Think like Manhattan or, or some of these, you know, Tokyo or these, these trading centers of the world, Hong Kong. Very prosperous. Very pagan. All different gods were allowed to be worshipped. All types of gods could be worshipped. You brought your god, you'd worship him. Very pagan. Um, and, 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 and totally, you know, polytheistic. And just, it was this melting pot. Incredibly immoral. It was so immoral. Aristophanes coined a term. Corinthiazo. It's a verb. It means to be morally decadent. Like if you wanted to describe someone as morally decadent, you would, you would, Use the term Corinthian. They're, they're very Corinthian. Oh, they were Corinthian, Corinthianing the other day. And like, if you wanted to describe it, that's what you would say. I mean, it was kind of like, think of, you know, Bangkok, and think of Amsterdam's red light district, and think of brothels, and um, think of Las Vegas Strip, and think of all of these just these bad places, you know, just the most decadent things you can get, Mardi Gras and uh, New Orleans and all of this stuff and put it into one ball, and you're starting to get close to Corinth, okay? This is who Paul's writing to, the church in the midst of that culture. And he writes to them, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the whole section of 1 Corinthians 4 through 6, 4 through 7, that whole section is worth reading with all this in mind. But he writes to these believers. After he's addressed an issue of of, of sexual immorality that we'll look at in a little bit, he says in verse 6, do you not know how we'd say in English? Don't you realize? In other words, he's telling them something that he is saying they should already know, and they probably already do know. He's just reminding them of it in his letter. Don't you know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? I mean, they had taken, the Corinthians had taken this message of grace and run with it. They had taken the idea of, of you know, this dualism of the, the spirit realm and the earthly realm, and we got to get people's souls to heaven, and it doesn't really matter what they do with their body, um, and we're super spiritual, and Jesus forgives, so the more spiritual we are, the more forgiving we are. That means that we kind of brush aside sins, and he spends the whole chapter dealing with that. And then he just says, don't you know? Neither the sexually immoral, and he uses that term porneia right there at the beginning, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor, and this term I left in Greek, because I want you to just let it sit, but it's translated in different ways in your Bibles. The first term is malakoi, and sometimes it's translated as, um, I'm trying to think, like perverts, sometimes it's translated as male prostitutes, sometimes it's translated as the effeminate, Sometimes it's translated in different ways. And we'll talk about what it means in a minute, but it's right there. That's what he lists along with the other things. So, nor idolaters, adulterers, nor malakoi, nor, and he uses another word, arsenikoitai. And this is a term that Paul actually coined for all that we know because it, it's never appeared 
in written form in the Greek world before this verse. Um, and we'll talk about what it means in a minute. But it's usually translated as like, the King James does it the worst. It translates it as like abusers of themselves with mankind or something that nobody knows what that means. But other translations do like homosexual offenders or uh, different, again, look at whatever translation you use. But the term there, so he's saying, these are the things that will keep you from inheriting the kingdom of God. Sexual morality, idolatry, adultery, whatever malakoi is, whatever arsenikoitai is, thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers, none of them will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says in 11, that is what some of you were, past tense. But you were washed, you were sanctified, which means set apart. You were justified, which means made right with God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And then he goes on to address these slogans that the Corinthian church had adopted, these, these, these bumper stickers, chariot stickers that the Corinthians had come up with these, before there was such a thing as a meme on the Internet. This is what would have circulated on their Twitter accounts and their Instagram. And he says, everything is permissible for me. So that was one of the slogans for, of Corinthian culture, and the church had sort of imbibed it. Everything's permissible, you know, freedom in Christ. And then he counters it, but not everything's beneficial. Beneficial. Everything's permissible, but he counters again, but I'll not be mastered by anything. And there's a word play in that, that that doesn't come out in English, but it's like the word for permissible is the word for like, has to do with the word that also means to be mastered. So it's like, I, I'm master of everything. And then he says, but I'll not be mastered by anything. That sort of preserves the wordplay, regardless. And then he quotes another slogan that they have, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. And then this is where translations differ. This is where I'm going to depart with the NIV because I think they miss it here. But they say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and they put the quotation mark ending there. However, it's much more likely for a number of reasons that we won't get into now, but that's translations possible. But there's no such thing as quotation marks in Greek. There's no such thing as spaces between letters in Greek. There's no punctuation. All of these are additions by translators and editors, so keep that in mind. But it's much more likely that the quotation extends all the way to the end of the next line. So it's much more likely that the full slogan wasn't food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but rather it was food for the stomach, the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. A dualistic slogan. We talked about dualism the past couple of weeks. The idea that, yeah, eating is for, you know, food is for your stomach, and that's just earthly stuff. The stomach's made for food, food's made for the stomach, and God's going to destroy them both. What counts is our soul, our spirit. That's the slogan that's most likely he was countering here. And he counters it by saying, and so the implication is, it doesn't matter what we do with our body, you know, you're hungry, you eat. You're Sexually excited, you have sex. You release the pressure. It's all part of it. It's just, you know, it's a it's, it's normal thing. And, and what he's countering with, he says, no, the body's not meant for sexual immorality, or porneia, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he'll raise us also. In other words, God didn't take Jesus' spirit to heaven. He took his body, resurrected it. And that's where we're all headed, is a resurrected body. So the idea of dualism is completely false. We, we've seen that, and I don't want to beat that horse anymore, but dualism, no. Goal of Christian resurrection. Goal of Greek, dualism. Disembodied spirit floating off into the heavens, playing a harp in the clouds, whatever. That's not Christian. Christian is these bodies that God gave us that are created in his image. We're going to get them back. 
and they'll be recognizable, and they'll be continuous, but they will be transformed and incorruptible and renewed, and that's about all we know in terms of the details. And so he goes on to say, don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? That's a very graphic image when you realize what members encompasses. Like all of your members. And as we saw with the Song of Song, that means all. Um, So he's basically saying, am I going to take Jesus' body to a prostitute? Am I going to take, when you commit sexual morality, when you commit porneia, which is where the term prostitute comes from, when you when you do that, you're t- if you're a Christian, you're taking Jesus' body, part of his body, which is you, and you're using it for that. You're uniting it in sexual immorality. So it has, it has strong implications. It's not just this, oh, it doesn't matter what we do because food for the stomach, the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. No, what we do with our body supremely and eternally matters. Verse 16, don't you know that he unites with himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it said the two will become one flesh. That verse should be familiar if you were here in week one. And he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So flee from porneia, sexual immorality. Flee it. And this, here again is where the NIV, I think, misses it. Um, there's two ways you can translate this. You can translate it as saying all other sins a man commits are outside his body. So in other words, Paul's saying all other sins... There, there, there's other sins, and then there's sexual morality. So flee sexual morality. That's how the NIV reads. I, again, I don't think that's right, and other popular translations translate it this way. This is another slogan that he's addressing. The slogan is, literally in Greek it says, uh, every sin a person commits, a man commits, is outside his body. That's literally what the Greek says. Every sin a person commits is outside his body. So it's much more likely that that's one of these Corinthian slogans that was being bandied about, is every sin you commit is outside the body. You can sin and it doesn't matter. It's, it's outside of the body. What really matters is your spirit. It's just your outside body. It's external. What matters is my heart loves Jesus, and he and I have this thing. We're, we're good. What I do with my body on the weekends, no big deal. That's the slogan that I would argue, and a number of commentators on Corinthians would argue, that Paul is countering. And he's saying, and he counters it by saying, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. In other words, yeah, the sin you're committing may be outside of your body, but it's also being committed against your own body. Your body, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you receive from God? You're not your own You were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your body. Paul never divorces your spirituality from your sexuality, ever. It's always a part of the unified whole of who we are in the New Testament. And he's writing this to Corinthians, of all people, who were brought up, who all they've ever known was a culture that says the way that you show your true devotion and your true spirituality is by having sex in many different ways with many different people, by, by giving yourself to the gods or the goddesses sexually, the most intimate part of you, offering that up on the altar and showing your devotion to Aphrodite or whichever god you choose to serve. That's who he's writing these words to. At no point in history has the gospel ever not been countercultural when it comes to sexual ethics. It's always been a different way. 
It's always been a different way, and that's, that's into whom it was given, uh, into the culture that it was given. So that the idea of the dualistic slogan, you know, every sin a man commits is outside his body, Paul is basically saying sin doesn't affect our inner spiritual state. Um, and, and the reason part of that is, you know, if you're reading along the NIV, that word other is not in the original text. and It's added by the translators to, to make it read in the way that they're interpreting it. Um, I don't know if the new NIV's updated it or not, but that, again, check the commentaries for that. And if the whole idea of Bible translations is new and weird to you, get a copy of Bible for the rest of us because we spend a whole bunch of sessions on that. So then the issue becomes, okay, how do we treat, how do we deal with sexual sin inside the church versus sexual sin outside the church? Because in the same letter that Paul writes, he addresses this issue. In the previous chapter, in fact, he had addressed this issue. Uh, a quote, again, another quote by Wesley Hill in, in Washington Waiting. Wesley's a New Testament scholar. Wesley's also written a book, Washington Waiting, is about his life as a lifelong uh, same-sex-oriented Christian who realizes that he has to live or, or desires to live by a biblical sexual ethic. And so his wrestling with that of only being attracted to the same gender, but seeing what Scripture teaches and how he as a Christian lives that out. It's one of the best books I've ever read, uh, and I'll mention it again later. But this is a quote from that. He says, Through baptism, Christians have entered a corporate whole whose health is at stake in the conduct of all its members. Sin is like an infection in the body. Thus, moral action is not merely a matter of individual freedom and preference. The New Testament never considers sexual conduct a matter of purely private concern between consenting adults. Never. That is a totally foreign concept to the New Testament within the body of Christ. Now, that's very different from a legal, cultural view of how your politics shape out in what you think in a pluralistic society how we should live. And there could be a strong Christian case made for government not having much oversight into what consenting adults do in private. That's a whole different issue. No matter where you stand on it, that's a different issue. What Paul is writing to, what the New Testament talks about, is within the people of God, within the church, once you're baptized, you give up your right to live however you desire. You give up sexual autonomy once you enter into the body of Christ because your body is now part of Jesus' body. And what you do with your body now affects Jesus' body as a whole in ways seen and in ways unseen that we won't even ever know fully until we get to heaven. But in 1 Corinthians 5, on page 38, <clears throat> Paul's writing about a situation in Corinth. And it's a situation, we don't know all of the details, but we know enough to conclude the gist of it, which is among the Corinthian Christians, it was known that one of their members, possibly one of their leaders or one of their influential members, was living in an adult consensual relationship with his father's wife. Now, that could be his father could be dead. It could have been his stepmother. It could be his natural mother, although that's not likely because of the way the language is used. Um, he, it could be they could be married. They could just be living together. They could be having an affair and the father's still alive. We don't know the details, but we know that there was a consensual relationship between two adults and Paul writes them, 1 Corinthians 5, to address that problem within the church. What he says has so much to say 
about issues of sexuality that we face today. He says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality, that term porneia, among you, and of a kind that doesn't even occur among pagans. That's a way of saying, you're not only doing it bad, you're doing it really bad. Like, even, your pay, even the Corinthians aren't into what you're permitting. He says, a man has his father's wife, and you're proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? The Corinthians were, were proud. They were, we're spiritual. We're tolerant. We accept all people, and, and, and it's a loving relationship. And it's, you know, who are we to impose our sexual values on this member of our church? Jesus forgives. Who am I to judge? All of these things that are very common to hear among Christians today. And Paul's rebuking them for this. He's saying, you're proud of it? You should be mourning. You should be in, in mourning for this. He says, even though I'm not physically present, because he's writing this from a long way away, I'm with you in spirit. I've already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you're assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I'm with you in spirit, and in the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Now again, there's a lot involved in that, but what he's saying, the gist of it, and check the commentaries if you want to know all the questions. What he's basically saying is, excommunicate this guy. This person that's doing this, send them out of your fellowship. That's why handing over to Satan is, is a way of, of saying, remove him from, your, from the church. Church discipline. When you're all together, not some person telling him, okay, well, they said you can't come back anymore. No, all together, where everyone can see, where everyone is present, as a public example, say, we can't have this. You cannot continue among us. Hand him over to Satan, is what Paul says. And it actually worked in 2 Corinthians. Paul has to write them back and say, okay, now that he's repented, let him back in. <laughs> like, they do this. They actually follow through with it. But he says, verse 6, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with the bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. He's alluding to the cleansing that would happen before Passover in Jewish families. Before celebrating the Passover, there would be this meticulous going through of the house and getting rid of all the yeast. And yeast could be transmitted airborne. You know, if you had yeast in the same room as something, the spores from it, the, the, the fungus, whatever yeast is, could get into and could remain. So there would be a meticulous cleaning of the house in, in Old Testament Judaism. Paul's using that image to describe the, the uh, church's stance towards known open sexual immorality among its members. And so he's saying... Get it out. Get it out of there. Verse 9, I've written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So in other words, you get the point. I've written you this, and either in this letter or in the previous letter he wrote, which we don't have. Regardless, he said, you know, I've said don't associate with sexual, sexually immoral people. But then he clarifies. Here's the kicker, verse 10. But not at all meaning the people of the world who are immoral, or the greedy and the swindlers, idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. But now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother or sister, who claims to be a Christian, that is, but is sexually immoral or greedy. 
an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. But such a person don't even eat. And that don't even eat is a reference, almost, like, almost definitively a reference to the, the eating together, the communion meal, the fellowship. Church in the New Testament was you get together and have a meal. So it's not, not there's good round, grounds for, say, for Paul not saying, yeah, if you see him out in the marketplace, just, you know, or if you go to a business meeting and he's there, don't eat with him. But what he's specifically saying is by, the, by sexual immorality, along with greed, along with these other sins, including lying and you know, all these, that can disqualify you from standing within the people of God. And it should, if it's open and unrepentant and known, it, it should disqualify you so long as you're remaining in that. Why? Because God's call, just as in the Old Testament, he said, you are to not live like the pagans. You are to be holy. So there's a call to that. And the penalty in the Old Testament was being cut off from Israel, being, being cut off from the people, whether that meant death, whether it meant exile, whether it meant shunning, whatever. Regardless, there was a separation that was made. In the New Covenant, it's the same thing, only the people of Israel is now all of Israel, Jew and Gentile together. And the people of God, the community, is now the community around the communion table. And so there is a very strong case for sexual behavior being something that can break fellowship between Christians. So when we're thinking about our sexual ethic, we have to wrestle with this passage, and we have to realize that according to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you know, God says, what business is of mine to judge those outside the church? Uh, are you not to judge those, judge those inside the church? God will judge those outside. But, and then he quotes Deuteronomy, expel the wicked person from among you. In other words, judgment begins with the house of the Lord. Don't bemoan the world's fallenness and the world's sexual brokenness. They don't know better. You do, is what Paul's saying. So the standard that we hold ourselves to, and this, should, this begins with each of us, the standard we hold ourselves to is much, 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 much higher than the standard we hold the world to. And conflating those two can lead to all kinds of, of problems. The thing that we want to keep in mind, corporate covenant holiness can be affected by tolerated individual sin. That the body of Christ is a community. It's not individualistic. What I do, even if it's in the privacy of my own bedroom, what I do affects you if you're a believer. It affects my church. It affects my community because we are all connected. It's a corporate entity that we're in. It's the church. And this is hard in our post-evangelistic, um, you know, four spiritual laws mindset of it's just about getting me and Jesus on the same page and I go to heaven when I die. The biblical reality is much more communal. It's much more about our relationship. Most of the yous in the Bible, Y-O-U, are really y'alls. The Bible should be written with a southern draw so they can say y'all, because most of the time when it says you, it means y'all as a group. There's a paradox of, in this verse as well of the handing over of Satan over to Satan is for redemption of the offender. Excommunication is never meant to be a threat that you levy against somebody you don't like. It's never meant to be a way of weeding out the undesirables. It's never meant to be any of that. It's always meant, it's always been meant to be a way of saying you cannot have one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world. 
And if you're willfully keeping one foot in the world and refusing to repent after being approached, after being uh, rebuked, after being brought before the elders, this, this all presumes that all the other steps that are mentioned in the New Testament are happening. If there's still unrepentance, then, then the handing over to Satan is saying, fine, you want to live in the kingdom of darkness? Back into the kingdom of darkness you go. You cannot participate in the kingdom of light. It's a, it's a cutting off of fellowship from the, from the life-giving spiritual sustenance of the church, which is the body of Christ. That's what it's supposed to be. And the goal of it is always, always for the, uh, the restoration of the person. Always the goal is for there to be restored, for there to be repentance. Never for, for it to be like good riddance. We're tired of you anyway. Always to be we want you to come back, but you cannot, you cannot exist light and dark at the same time. You've got to decide it's either offer Jesus or offer the world. So that's a dynamic that has to be involved. And then there's a proper place, what this tells us, there's a proper place for judging. One of the biggest urban legends among Christians is that the Bible teaches you shouldn't judge. And that's absolutely not true. In fact, when Jesus says, judge not lest ye be judged, Matthew 7, the same Jesus ends that section by saying, judge righteously. In other words, don't judge hypocritically. First take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. The whole purpose of taking the plank out of your eye is so you can help your brother remove the speck out of theirs. Judgment, judgment is a proper thing when it's done non-hypocritically and in a spirit of grace and wanting to see the person flourish and be everything that God created them to be. When it's done out of a sense of anger, or self-righteousness, that's when it becomes judgmentalism. And that's what's not allowed. Because John chapter 7, Jesus flat out says to the Pharisees, you're judging by outward appearances. Stop judging by outward appearances. Make a righteous judgment. Jesus actually commands us to judge in John 7. And he even does it in Matthew 7 as well. And Paul does it here. Paul flat out says, I've already passed judgment on this. There's some things that Paul doesn't, he knows the facts, there's no more information needed. There's no dialogue needed. A person having their father's wife is out of bounds. It's not allowed. There is in no way, shape, or form, there's no possible ethical universe in which that is pleasing to God. And so he makes a judgment. And there's a time to do that as well. And the last one is this tension that we see in this passage between church and Caesar, between Christians and politics. The church is one domain where judgment is exercised. Outside the church is another domain, and God will make the judgment there. God will exercise judgment on all peoples. God did judge the Canaanites because of their wickedness, and he used Israel as his means of judgment. But that was God's prerogative. Israel didn't have free reign to go in and wipe out whoever they wanted. Israel could, could go specifically against the specific people God was judging because, like he did in the days of Noah, like he did with Sodom and the cities on the plain, like he did in times with Israel itself under the Assyrians and the Babylonians, like he did with uh, Jerusalem under the Romans in 70 AD, God has the prerogative to judge nations, and only God has that prerogative. And so as Christians, we are never called in the New Testament to extend the, the, the ethics of the kingdom over people who aren't in the kingdom. We're called to first make sure that our house is in order. 
Now, if we find ourselves in a culture where we can work to bring light and to bring salt and to do that, we're given that freedom, but we're never given the mandate to do that. And that's where Christians in our righteousness can overstep and we can decide we're going to use political or governmental means to enforce kingdom principles. And this is, this is a super important passage to keep in mind and to think through when we're discussing issues of the interchange between the church and the state when it comes to sexual ethics. So let's take a quick break, and then we're going to come and we're going to finish with what is in our culture today one of the most pressing issues for Christians, and that is uh, homosexuality, same-sex attraction. So literally, guys, three-minute break because we've got a lot to cover in these last 30 minutes, all right? And get started. While we're waiting for people to come back before we get started again, I'll let you know that we're recording all of these sessions, video and audio. The audio will be made available probably sooner than the video will. And the goal is eventually to, to put together a DVD that other life groups at the church can use and, and other people can purchase and use on their own. Also, in this course, I've given you more material than we can cover. It's only a four-week course. Probably could work best as a six-week if, if, if any of your churches ever want to do it or those of you that aren't Good Shepherd. Um, but there's more than what we can cover, and that's okay. Again, this class is supposed to be a jumping-off point for you and for you to do your own digging and searching and studying, which is why I've given you the list of resources on the first page of your notebook. I've also included a number of things online on my website, Disciple Dojo website, uh, including videos of panel discussions that I've participated in, uh, written uh, dialogues with people who disagree on these issues. Um, there's all kinds of stuff there, so, so be sure to check that out. And tonight, last shameless plug before we start, uh, tonight, if I've mentioned a couple of the other resources and courses that we've taught here. I have 
copies of that curriculum, DVDs and books and stuff available at the back, and they're about $10 cheaper if you buy them from me than if you order them through the website. So uh, if you're interested in getting something, tonight's the last night, <clears throat> I would encourage you. And I do take credit card. I have a swipey thing, so that is no excuse. Um, okay, end of self-promotion. Let's, let's get back to we've got 30 minutes, not even, to cover the most contentious issue in the last 40 years of Christianity. So no big deal, right? No pressure. The elephant in the room, homosexuality and same-sex attraction. There are a number, uh, this, this is a quote by John Collins, I think it's right on. He says, at times it seems that many writers start with an opinion about homosexuality and then interpret scripture in a way that supports their positions. This is the danger that we always have to be on the lookout for, no matter our position. Christians over the years have said all kinds of things about the LGBT community, like gay, lesbian, transsexual, bisexual, whatever. The names are always changing. Some cues are getting added now. And Regardless, I'm just going to use the term the gay community. Uh, Pat Robertson famously said uh, back in 1998 on 700 Club, I would warn Orlando that you're right in the way of some serious hurricanes. I don't think I'd be waving those flags. And he's talking about the gay pride flags. In God's face, if I were you. It's not a message of hate, it's a message of redemption, but a condition like this will bring about the destruction of your nation, it'll bring about terrorist bombs, it'll bring earthquakes, tornadoes, and possibly a meteor. This is what the gay community has heard from Christian leaders. Whether we agree, with, whether Pat Robertson's mainstream or not, I would argue he's not, but he's very influential, and he's got a network, <laughs> a whole TV show, I don't have that. Regardless of whether you agree, this message is getting out there, and it's gotten out there over the years. Jerry Falwell famously in 1977 at a rally talked about the so-called gay folks would just as soon kill you as look at you. In other words, stirring up this, this sentiment to get the moral majority, right-wing uh, voters, out to the polls and the ballot boxes to oppose these, this, this, this gay agenda. And, and so, the, again, this is what people have heard, and they associate this with conservative Christianity. And then, of course, there's the famous Westboro Baptist and the Phelps family. It's a cult out in Kansas that's basically one family. This guy, Fred Phelps, he's dead now. He knows better now. But uh, he would lead his little cult in protests around the nation whenever national events would happen, protesting and blaming it almost all on uh, accepting same-sex homosexuality issues. So regardless of what you believe, Christians have a legacy of hatred when it comes to homosexuality, and we just have to acknowledge that. doesn't matter what the, the so-called gay agenda is, whether it's real, whether it's not real, and Christians can differ on that. doesn't matter the persecution of bakers in Oregon or wedding photographers getting sued out of their minds because they won't shoot a gay wedding or whatever. I've given you a resource to deal with that in the back. But like it or not, Christian, the church has a stigma as being anti-gay. Number one thing, when, when millennials were polled, probably about 10 years ago, when they were polled on what is the, the thing that most characterizes Christians in America, the number one thing was their anti-gay. Number one thing, more than anti-poverty, more than anti-abuse, more than anti-gay. Anti that's, that's extremely telling because that's how we're known. In response to this, in the last 40 years, a number of mainline Christian denominations have gone to become full inclusive. So they voted as denominations. They've, they've, they've either voted or acted to rescind the biblical prohibitions against same-sex behavior and to say that 
that only applies, Paul's words only apply to people who were engaging in idolatry or pederasty, which is an older man and a younger boy, or temple prostitution, and that Paul never knew about loving, monogamous, committed, same-sex relationships. And if he had, and he knew modern psychology, he would embrace that just like the church embraced the Gentiles. So a number of denominations, PCUSA, uh, the United Church of Christ, UCC, and uh, Bishop Eugene Robinson was uh, the first ordained openly gay bishop in the Episcopal Church, which began a series of events that led to the Anglican and the Episcopal Church in America splitting and there being a, a rift on that issue. But also in our own denomination of Methodism, there's a movement among Methodists called the Reconciling Ministries Network. It's a caucus group that seeks to make the church through, you know, um, parliamentary procedure at general conference or whatever, seeks to, or through civil disobedience, to make the church embrace full inclusion and, and drop the, the ethic, the, the, the requirement of living uh, celibacy and singleness or faithfulness in heterosexual marriage. That's the United Methodist Church's position. And there's a strong movement. In fact, people are surprised when they find out Good Shepherd's Methodist because they find out, well, but you actually hold to an orthodox biblical sexual ethic. And we're like, well, yeah, so do Methodism around the world. It's just the ones that, that are pushing for, against it make the headlines. Um, but some of the, the bishops in the news, um, you've seen Schaefer, who performed a wedding for a son and was, had his credentials revoked, but then the bishops decided to give him back his credentials and kind of a slap on the wrist kind of thing. Methodist Church is in a lot of dysfunction, and it's over this issue. It's over the people. It's not just an issue. These are people. And, and so it's something that we're wrestling with, but also among evangelicals, not just mainline Protestants and not fundamentalists, but evangelicals kind of the, in the middle. Tony Campolo is famous for just recently having come out for full inclusion of, of accepting committed same-sex relationships as being a valid form of marriage and, um, and, and has, has a large sway among a more progressive-leaning evangelicals. Or Matthew Vines has written a book that's gotten a lot of press, God and the Gay Christian, where he argues that the prohibitions in Scripture aren't really against loving, committed, same-sex uh, relationships. And then recently, people like Rob Bell and evangelical blogger Rachel Held Evans, who's a best-selling author, these are young millennial evangelicals who have been, basically, they call it coming out. They're not gay, but they're, they're coming out in favor of the church, embracing and accepting same-sex sexual relationships among Christians who are in committed relationships with each other and, and, and so, you know, agreeing with same-sex marriage and all of that. So this is, this is within the church as well as our culture that's dealing in light of the Supreme Court decision with secular issues of same-sex marriage. Within the church in the last 40 years, there's been a push uh, to accept and embrace this. And so Christians that, that stand on a biblical sexual ethic have to wonder, what do we do? A proponents of uh, accepting same-sex sexual relationships will talk about Christians using what they call the clobber passages. They'll say there's these five, six, seven passages tops that deal with homosexuality, and what Christians do is they just pull those out, proof text, hold them up in a sign, and they use them to just clobber gay people with. And that's, that's, a, that's an extreme caricature, but it sometimes, as we've seen with you know, Falwell and Robertson and others, it can seem fitting. At this class, though, what I hope you've seen through this class is it's not clobber passages as much as it's consistent biblical prohibition. There is a consistent biblical prohibition, starting with creation, then moving into Torah, the Leviticus Holiness Code 
then moving into Jesus' own teachings on porneia, which absolutely entailed same-sex sexual relationships. The idea that they didn't know about that or they didn't have that back then is completely unfounded. No New Testament scholar that's, that's legitimate would make that argument. They did know about it. There's some fringe and some revisionist scholars that have tried to make the argument that some forms of, porn, of same-sex relationships would not qualify as porneia, but there's a huge burden of proof on them to make that argument, and in the eyes of the New Testament scholar community, they have not succeeded from a, from a scholarly perspective of demonstrating it. But it's a consistent prohibition going through Jesus' teachings to the apostles' teachings in the letter of Acts 15, specifically uh, putting sexual immorality outside of the bounds, and that would have included, it did include, same-sex relationships that were known throughout the Roman Empire. Peter's epistle mentions it, prohibits it, and then Paul's epistles in three places specifically mention, and actually four, yeah, three places specifically mention same-sex behavior. When I say that, I mean sex between people of the same gender. There's a whole psychology and issue of the gay identity and who we are as a person. Hopefully this course has helped you at least start to formulate that. When I say same-sex relationships, I'm referring to the relationship, the act, the sexual acts that are taking place. That is what Scripture consistently prohibits. There's no counter-witness to it. There's no place in Scripture where, where, where sexuality is even on the radar and same-sex issues come up where they're not condemned as being outside of the will of God. Not the people, the actions. There's no counter voice. There are other issues where Scripture kind of gives two different perspectives or where there's some tension or whether there's one passage will say one thing, but then if you read another passage, it seems to push for something else and you have to do some you know, interpreting and figure out what the whole message is. When it comes to the issue of same-sex behavior, same-sex sexual relationships, there's no counter example in Scripture. People have tried to find, they've tried to make up examples of like, uh, they've said, you know, Naomi and Ruth were probably, there was some lesbianism going on there. Or David and Jonathan and their love for each other was different than a love for a man and a woman, meaning that they had a sexual encounter and a sexual relationship. And people have tried to make these arguments, but no credible biblical scholar agrees with that. And I rarely say that about something, but in this case, that's, that's pretty true. If you read arguments like that, you can know that you're probably reading a website or a self-published book by somebody. Um, Paul, we saw when he talked about, do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor malakoi or arsenikoitai. When Paul used those two terms, the approach that people like Vines and others who more recently are trying to um, push for full inclusion of same-sex ethics in the church, they've said, well, we don't really know what those terms mean because they're not used widely in the Greek world. But they probably had to do with pederasty, which is, which is an oppressive form of same-sex behavior where an older male would, would abuse, a young, or, or he would call it nurturing and loving, um, a younger male would groom him sexually. And that's prevalent in Greek cultures. It's been prevalent through Romans have uh, been known to do it. In Asian cultures, it's happened. The, the whole idea of, 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 of an older man and a younger boy, there's even an organization in America called NAMBLA, National Association, Man, Boy, Love Association, or something like that. I mean, there, it's, it's, a, it's an historic reality. So some people have said, well, that's what Paul was talking about. But the problem was that those terms are not unknown terms. 
Those terms aren't this mysterious terms that we don't understand. Rather, malakoi, the term we first used, it literally means soft ones. But in the context and, and in, in the ancient setting, it had to do, and it was used consistently or fairly regularly, of what we would call the receiving partner in a male homosexual act. And the other term, arsenokoitai, is actually a common... Paul actually coined the term, if he coined it, or if he was just using it already in use, but it's made up of two words in the Greek Old Testament. The word for man and the word for to lie or bed. And it's literally, it means man better. But more the connotations based on its usage in the Septuagint, which is what LXX means, it has to do with the active partner in a male homosexual relationship. So basically, Paul's using language that is very easily identifiable or strongly uh, representative of both partners in a male-male homosexual relationship, the active and the passive, the, the, you know, whatever terms you want to use. Um, and, and that's what he's specifically referring to. He doesn't, he doesn't limit it to pederasty. He doesn't talk about it being idolatrous. He's, he's speaking of the act, the behavior, which is what Scripture always prohibited, the behavior. Not a rejection of the person, but of actual the, the actions. So what we see in Scripture, rather, is <clears throat> that sexual brokenness is, is a consequence of humans having turned away from God to idolatry. At a big, at a, at a meta level, at an at a overall level. That's what Paul talks about in Romans 1. So in 1 Timothy and 1 Corinthians, he specifically mentions and singles out the, the male homosexual type of relationships, which were prevalent in Greco-Roman culture. Don't ever say Paul didn't know about this. No, he very well knew about it. Take an art history class. Look at their urns and vases. You'll see all kinds of things you never thought they knew about back then. They knew about it. But instead, what he's talking about, Paul actually says in Romans 1, the famous passage where he talks about the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse." For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Uh, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, and this, is, this is Paul's characterizing how idolatry entered into the human race and people turning from the one true God and worshiping all kinds of other things and idols and images and philosophies, their own choosings and people and everything. This is the, the, the account of the Gentile world. And so, verse 24, Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Sexuality and idolatry were intimately linked, as we've seen. It was like two sides of the same coin. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error in Greek. NIV says perversion. It's the word for error. And furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind 
to do what ought not to be done. They've become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They're senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Now, who's the they and the those in this? Some people reading the New Testament very flippantly and very foolishly have said, oh, this is all talking about gay people. And so these are the, this is what gay people are really like. They are the ones who are, and then they just put in all those sins. But that's not at all what Paul's saying. What Paul is saying is they are the Gentiles, the pagans, the people outside of the people of God. He's using a collective description of Gentile sinfulness into which the gospel was given, into which Israel was first called. And so he's listening. So for Paul, this, the act of, of, of men, of women, and it's interesting, Paul starts by saying women. So we know that he's not just talking about pederasty. He's not just talking about temple prostitution. He's talking, he uses lesbianism. Nowhere in the ancient world do we see that critiqued like Paul does. Paul specifically starts with, with, with lesbianism because that wasn't a power thing like pederasty and other forms of pagan uh, homosexuality between men. There were times where it's like a power thing, like it is in prison today, that homosexuality is done for power and for degradation and for humiliation. But he, doesn't, so he starts with, with lesbianism. Uh, with women with women. So that lets us know that Paul's talking about the behavior, and he's not just talking about particular forms of what we would call um, idolatrous-type sexuality. However, he puts that behavior of women having sexual relations with men, women and men having sexual relations with men, he puts it all within the context of the general tendency of humanity to turn away from the created, revealed Word of God and to turn towards a thing of their own making a gods of their own serving. He drops in this section. We don't have time to go into it, but there's key terms in this section. You can circle them if you want to, but the terms likeness, looks like, man, birds, animals, reptiles, and then the word for woman and man, which is literally in Greek, male and female. Those terms in this chapter are specific terms that the Old Testament, the Septuagint, uses in Genesis 1 when it's talking about the creation and the male and female image of God. And so what Paul's basically saying in the big picture is that those who suppress the truth about God visible in creation went on to suppress the truth about his image themselves visible in nature. And instead of living a life in, 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 in committing or, or practicing sexuality in the way God intended, Humans turned to and began practicing sexuality in the way that they themselves desired. And that's what entered into the world, all of these deviant forms of sexual practices throughout all of the different cultures. Whether it was polygamy, whether it was same-sex, whether it was um, um, habitual sexual addiction, whether it was sexual idolatry, what, all of that, Paul traces it all back to this root thing of, of basically turning away from what God has revealed through nature and through his word and, and creating a God in our own image, creating something. And we know he's talking about idolatry. Paul's echoing the thoughts of, of the Jewish world at the time. There's an intertestamental book. It's in the Apocrypha. It's not in the New Testament, but it was written after the Old Testament. If you're Catholic, it's in your Catholic Bible. 
and it's called The Wisdom of Solomon. And in the Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 14, it specifically talks about how, it's like you can read, in fact, do this. Read the Wisdom of Solomon. If you don't have it in your Bible, you can Google it, look it up online. Uh, It's free, public domain. Read Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 14, and read it in comparison to Romans 1. And you'll see that Paul is not inventing any of this. Paul is giving the standard first century Jewish view of how the pagan Gentile world became so corrupt and so wantonly sinful in all different aspects, including, and maybe most prominently, in their sexual ethic. That's what Paul's critiquing in Romans 1. But he's including, so he's not singling out homosexuality as worse than these other things, but he is definitely including it in these lists of behaviors, and he's putting it at the head of the list because, not because it's the worst and it's the most condemnable, but because it cuts to the heart, to the very nature of that male-female image of God, imago Dei relationship, going all the way back to Genesis 1. It's a very unique turning of what is supposed to be the most precious gift and and the, the the thing that most fully reflects the fullness of God's image, which is the coming together of male and female in sexual one-flesh union, it's the, it's the distorting of that or the turning of that or the taking of that and turning it into something else that's almost that but that's different. And so that's the behavior, it's the practice, that's the reason that Paul can put it at the head of this list is because it strikes all the way back at the beginning relationship that God desired. Not the only thing that does that. But in a, in a very visible way throughout the Greco-Roman world, it was one way in which the Jews always looked at the pagan culture around them and saw that this is one of the primary ways that the pagan culture can distort or can skew God's gift of sexuality is, is through their, their, their bending it or twisting it into something else. Now, does that mean that Paul believes every single gay person makes a choice to say, I'm going to exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the Creator, and I'm going to become... No, Paul's not making that argument. And there are so many complex issues involved in how we deal with same-sex, um, gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, all those things on a personal level. There are many, many, many issues, and it's very complicated. And what we can't do is oversimplify. So let me make two points real quick, and then we're out of time. We'll make a couple of minutes over, and the nursery workers will just have to forgive me. But the question that comes up all the time, so what about the Bible teaches? Okay, so the Bible says that homosexuality is wrong. Well, the Bible also said that slavery was cool, and we don't do that anymore. And the Bible said that women could be property, but we don't do that anymore. So why are you picking? This is the standard argument that the culture uses. I've given you on page 40 um, what the Bible gives us is what's called a redemptive trajectory. A redemptive trajectory, hermeneutic. Hermeneutic is just how you read and study the Bible. What I mean by this, and this is from William Webb in his book, Slave, Women, Homosexuals. Um, The Bible, we are, the, the Bible here, so X, Y, and Z. X along the bottom is the original culture. What the Bible was given into that culture, Old Testament in the ancient Near East, New Testament in the Greco-Roman world, the Bible was given into that culture at point Y. And in comparison to where that culture was, it was pulling the culture towards a redemptive ethic. It was, it was speaking into the culture a better trajectory than where that culture was. However, we now are living at a much later time. So from the perspective of the person at Culture X, they look at the Bible, 
Scripture, and they'd go, that is incredibly progressive. You know, that is, even the Old Testament laws that we think are really outdated, at the time, they would look at those laws and go, whoa, wait a minute, that's, that's, you're getting too liberal there, Paul, you're getting too progressive, you know, you're getting, you know, they would look at that and say, that's really stretching it. Whereas we look back and go, oh, you're not far enough. And what he says is that the Bible gives us this redemptive where it's moving us along. It's pointing us to God's ultimate, God's ideal along um, a redemptive path. So we can look at parts of the Bible. We saw the first week that Jesus flat out acknowledged that Torah wasn't a universal for all time ideal. He said, Moses gave you the option of divorce because of your hard heartedness. But it wasn't that way in the beginning. Jesus pointed his readers back to the intention of God, which was to point forward to where God wanted the world to be going. So throughout Scripture, you do see this redemptive movement. So in periods in earlier, after the fall, women are, 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 are dealt with in a way that, that we look at and go, whoa, that's really patriarchal, and it was. But then as Scripture progresses, you start to see women taking a higher role. You get to the time of judges, and a woman leads Israel unthinkable. Then you get to the New Testament, and Jesus's first eyewitnesses to the resurrection were women. Then you get to Paul, and he gives the book of Romans to a woman named Phoebe to take to Rome and to read to them and to teach them. So you get this movement, this trajectory, where you can see that women are, 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 are being brought back up to what happened in the garden, which was the fracturing of that equal relationship. Same thing with slavery. It starts with the idea of slavery. God takes Israel out of Egypt. In the ancient world, slavery was normal, and it wasn't chattel slavery. It wasn't race-based slavery. It wasn't like roots, kutukente, like North American slavery. It was much more, you know, captured in war, or it was you sold yourself into debt as a servant. It was this weird hybrid between what we know of slavery and what we would think of as servanthood, and it was, it was neither, but it was somewhere in between. Well, in Scripture, you see a trajectory where God is giving, even the slaves have rights under Torah in terms of their death being punished and avenged, in terms of people being held accountable for how they treat slaves. In the New Testament, even, you get a whole book where Paul's writing to a guy, sending back his slave and saying, hey, this guy, you need to release him because he's not your slave, he's your brother. So Paul, undercutting the whole system of Roman slavery through the book of Philemon, you get this trajectory with slavery where it's being brought back up. People are being taken out of bondage into freedom in ever-increasing ways throughout Scripture. You don't have that when it comes to the issue of homosexuality. You don't find that. You don't find that when it comes to the issue of promiscuity. You don't find that. It's consistent biblical prohibition. So that's what makes the issue different. Not well, we just, we like women and we don't like slavery. And so now the new issue that we need to deal with is, it, it's not in the same category as those things. It's a different category of ethic, which is why the church does treat it differently when it comes to, to same-sex ethics. So this is the, the conundrum that people who deal, people who are, are actually in it, people who are going through it, uh, this quote from Richard Foster, it's at the bottom of page 40. I wish we had another week to talk about all this, but I'm going to leave you with some quotes and some ways to think about and pray for and to minister to people in our culture that wrestle with this. Uh, Foster says, on their right, they hear, and talking about people that are in the church that are struggling with their own sexual identity, on their right, they hear shrill denunciations of homosexuality. And though they appreciate the concern for biblical fidelity, they've been offended by the brash 
uninformed, pharisaical tone of the pronouncements. From their left, they hear enthusiastic acceptance of homosexuality. And though they appreciate the compassionate concern for the oppressed, they're astonished at the way the Bible is maneuvered to fit a more accommodating posture. All who are caught in the cultural and ecclesiastical chaos over homosexuality need our compassion and our understanding. That's the first thing to realize is that we have to walk that balanced line between shrill denunciation and gleeful acceptance that totally twists the Bible. And either, if, we let go, if, we, if we go to either one of those, then we've gone into error and we've gone away from a gospel sexual ethic. Instead, what we have to do, what, what, keep in mind is, is, for instance, what John Collins says, Christian counselor, he says, counselors should remember there's no typical homosexual lifestyle. It's inaccurate, insensitive, and unkind to conclude that most homosexuals are bar hoppers or activists who march in favor of gay rights or child molesters or effeminate in males or masculine, like we'd say butch in females, psychologically maladjusted or constantly preoccupied with sex. Such stereotypes lead Christians to push homosexuals away and deny them the love and acceptance that should be found in the church community. So the first thing we have to do is realize Every gay, lesbian, transgender, transsexual, bisexual, questioning, whatever that you meet, they're a person created in the image of God. They're a person who's heard all their life different things about who they are based on their sexual orientation. But they're a person with their own personal story, their own personal journey, and they have their own path that they have taken that's brought them to where they are. So the first thing that Christians have to do first thing is to enter into a relationship with them. The first thing we have to do is let them know, hey, you may always behave sexually how you want to, but no matter what you do, I'm still going to love you. I'm still going to think that you're somebody created in God's image, and I'm still going to care about you, and I'm still going to welcome you to my church. Now, there are membership vows. If you decide to join the church, these vows include things like, I willfully forsake all sin. So there are certain things that you may not be able to fully do in my church because they require a committed disciple of Jesus and, 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 a, and a relationship that you're living in sexually is incompatible with a committed disciple of Jesus' sexual relationship. However, that's not going to ever keep me from reaching out to you. It's not going to ever keep me from loving you. It's not going to ever keep me from being here for you. Every time you have a problem, I'm not going to bring it back to your homosexuality. Every time something bad happens to you, I'm not going to use it as an excuse to subtly to try to get you to pray more and change more. Like, it's just we have to give them a, a, what we'd want anybody, with anybody else, a manipulation-free relationship where they know that they're loved and honored in Jesus' name. That's what the church does. It's what we should do. Because like Paul told the Corinthians, this is what some of you once were. You've been baptized, you've been sanctified, you've been cleansed. So we have to exhibit that relationship. And uh, John Stott had a great quote. He said, and this not just true of homosexuality, but of all of us, really. But in particular, in particular within the homosexual community, at the heart of the homosexual condition is a deep loneliness. The natural human hunger for mutual love, a search for identity, and a longing for completeness. If homosexual people cannot find these things in the local church family, we have no business going on using that expression. And I, John Stott's one of my spiritual heroes, and I think he's absolutely right on. There's a craving and a longing 
that comes with sexual brokenness, whether it's homosexual, whether it's heterosexual, whether it's bisexual, whatever. There's a brokenness and a longing to be known and to be accepted among, um, among people for who you are. And so as we minister to, as we reach out, as we deal with people, um, we, we have to offer them love unconditionally. But at the same time, last quote, Stott says love, unlike cultural definition of love, love biblically is concern for the highest welfare of the beloved. And our highest human welfare is found in obedience to God's law and purpose, not in revolt against them. So when we're reaching out to people, when we're speaking with people who are sexually broken, who are experiencing or in sexual rebellion, usually it's going to be heterosexual. Most of the people we're going to encounter are sexually broken. It's in the realm of heterosexuality. Whether it's that or whether it's homosexuality, it's still the same root thing. Is this longing for the restoring of the image of God, the male-female union. And that's what to love someone is to constantly offer that to them. So there's this, remember Jesus' approach, strict tenderness. So in our tenderness, in our love, we can't abandon holiness. We can't abandon the biblical ethic. We can't go the route of the denominations that have said, we, you know, homosexuality is just another form of God's grace and we're just going to accept it. Scripture won't let us do that. Jesus won't let us do that. But at the same time, the thing that we can embrace that they're doing is the welcoming and the hospitality and the covering and prayer and the being there for people who are wrestling with issues of sexual identity, which always, always, always go so deep in people's psyche and in people's personality. It's not a surface. So avoid surfacey dichotomies. Avoid either-or thinking. Avoid oversimplification when you're dealing with same-sex issues in particular, but with any sexual issue. You're always dealing with a person, not an issue. You're always dealing with someone created in God's image who God longs for them to be restored to that image, just like he longs for all of us to be restored in any other area where we are sinfully broken as well. So passed out of time. Um, if you have child, over child care, run over there and get them for the sake of the nursery workers. But um, I'm going to stick around. I'm going to be at the back table. I've got resources. If you want to pick some up, I'd love to get you some. Uh, if you have some questions... Can, you can always contact me through email. Be sure to uh, note on your page if you're looking for a small group, if you're looking to get involved, if you want to keep on going with, with this, the connections you've made at your table or whatever, uh, that's what Shannon is here for, and that's what Good Shepherd wants to help you do if that's what you need. So let's pray, and then we will get out of here. Lord, thank you for giving us the space and the time to discuss issues that cut to the very core of who we are. Lord, we've only barely scratched the surface, but I pray that, that a hunger has been instilled in all of us to, to press deeper, to not settle for surface answers, to, to um, give this, this realm of ethics, this sexuality, this whole, whole uh, part of who we are as people that cuts to the very core of us. I pray that you would uh, allow us to give it the weight that it needs in our lives that you would allow us to be people of grace and people of truth, people who exhibit self-sacrificial love and who also call others within the body of Christ to a standard of sexual holiness that is for their own good and that reflects your own glory. 
Lord, show us how to do that in our individual settings that will all vary in our individual cultures, in our individual schools, homes, churches, workplaces. Give us the wisdom needed to take this ethic and move it from a theological level to a ministerial relationship level. Lord, I ask a blessing over everyone who came and who was part of this class. Uh, I pray that you would send them out in boldness and, and that they would be built up day by day in your love and that they are, would know their true identity as image bearers. In your name, we ask all of this. Amen. Thanks, everybody.